Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Extraordinary People. Today, our guest is the renowned orchestra conductor, James Gaffigan. James Gaffigan is currently the chief conductor of the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra and principal guest conductor of the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic Orchestra, recently extended for the third time. Since becoming chief conductor of the Lucerne Symphony Orchestra, James has made a very significant impact on the orchestra's profile, both internationally and nationally, with a number of highly successful tours. He's worked at the New York Philharmonic, the orchestras of Philadelphia, Cleveland, St. Louis, Baltimore, Toronto, and others. He's also uh, been the associate conductor of the San Francisco Symphony. And as well as that, um, James, uh, or Jimmy, as I still call him, um, we know each other for a number of years. Back on Staten Island, he was in a playgroup with my son, Howie. So we are just thrilled today to welcome you to this episode of Extraordinary People. I'm happy to join you. Well, let's uh, talk about Tell us a little bit about what you do, because I confess, um, music is um, not one of the things that I'm too knowledgeable about. Literature is my thing, but I do love music, especially the music of a fine orchestra. And uh, tell us what you're doing currently. Well, I mean, first off, I'd say literature and music actually have a lot in common. And Mm -hmm. I think the way you think about the great writers of the past is the way I think of the writers of music of the past. So for example, each great writer or great composer has their own voice. So you would read a book and say, oh, that has to be Hemingway or that has to be Steinbeck because their voice is so powerful. It's the same reason I would say that has to be Sibelius or that has to be Beethoven or Mozart. You know, they they end up having their own voice and their own way of expressing things. So, I mean, what I do as a conductor is, I do justice to the composer's work. So I'm bringing these pieces, these masterpieces to life with a full-size orchestra, sometimes up to 100 people on stage, and trying to make them all agree on one interpretation. So a conductor is always a bit of, bit of a mysterious profession to people because most people say, well, the notes are already on the page, so what do they need the guy waving their arms up there for, the girl waving their arms up there for? And my my job is a lot more psychology than waving my arms around. It's it's kind of making all these brilliant people be able to think together. And I think the best way to ex- to explain it to, let's say, a person who doesn't know much about music, it's like being a coach of a great baseball team or a football team. You've got these extraordinary players doing all the work. But you're not actually doing anything. You're facilitating them working together in a in a good and productive way. That's fascinating. 
Can you tell me what first sparked your interest back on Staten Island in music? Can you point to a particular teacher or maybe a parent or a friend, or is this just something that you kind of picked up on your own? Well, this is, we, I gravitated towards the piano. My parents had a piano in the house for some reason. I think my mother wanted to learn at some point. And there was always music playing in the house. I mean, no matter if it was popular music or whatever it might be, it was always, and I think my parents always had an appreciation for music, but they weren't the type to be going to the New York Philharmonic on the weekends, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there was always music in the house. Uh, my grandfather was a great dancer, as my grandmother was. And I remember everyone in my family has really good rhythm. There's not, there's <laughs> not a single person that doesn't have good rhythm. So I felt that from a young age. And I started just composing a little bit on the piano. I remember even from PS4 in Staten Island, all the teachers were musical. Mrs. Samuel Jen, my kindergarten teacher, had a piano in the classroom. Yes. She was able to play. Dr. Pilkington would lead the entire school in songs of the Beatles to, you know, uh, classical music. And she was she was a great singer herself. And we were surrounded by these extraordinary professors and teachers that loved music and that knew music needed to be part of the curriculum. So I think the... I also played in a band, you know, played the clarinet in the school band and the junior high school. And then it was really Barry Delman, who was at IS-75, who ran the band program. He was a Broadway player himself. He played in the symphony orchestra also, the bassoon, and he played, he was a reed guy. He played saxophone, clarinet, he played flute. He was an extraordinary person. He opened my mind to music and to how great it was to be playing music, also in an ensemble. And that was really, you know, I had an amazing education. This was all within a public school yes. in Staten Island, New York. Yes. It's beautiful. And mm-hmm. I mean, I really, it makes me sad that people are ending these music programs. So for me, it was an outlet. I love sports, like all the other kids on my block. I love playing baseball. I played in Little League. Uh, I was always playing out on the street, hockey or back in, you know, try basketball or tennis and swimming. But music was always the thing that kind of, excited me most. And um, I had a lot of different outlets. So I could pinpoint the time. Just I remember a time in junior high school where I said, okay, this is going to be my life. And I don't know in what capacity, but I was sure of it. Mm. And then as far as conducting, I remember it was in high school at LaGuardia High School, also public school in Manhattan, but a music and art school where I knew I got to conduct the orchestra at one point, sort of as a joke while my teacher went out and listened. She knew I knew the score. So she said, Jimmy, get up here and conduct. And and (laughs) I got up there and I, from that moment, I said, this is what I'm going to do. Being a conductor. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. So um, I love that you really stress the public schools because so many people I've spoken to who have really made it, who have gone on to great achievements, have have found their niche through the public school system. And I agree with you. I think we need to bring back those music, those art programs um, to our schools because oftentimes they get those students who may not have an interest in other types of academics academics, but may gravitate towards these other um, areas. Um, So now 
you know you want to be a conductor at this point. So that's very nice. But where do we go from here? Well, I was going to Juilliard pre-college on the weekends, uh-huh. and they offered a little conducting class. So I was able to conduct a very small orchestra at a very young age. I mean, I must have been, I don't know how, 17 or something like that. And uh, and I had a, I really, and I remember a lot of people saying, you can actually do this at Juilliard saying, I think you might end up doing this. And I was laughing because I, I was fascinated with, with the scores, with the, with the, the, you know, the books of music that had everyone's parts in them. I felt like I was playing Sherlock Holmes and figuring out the mystery of why this music sounded so good. They unlocked all the, you know, all the secrets to why this moment in a Beethoven symphony sounds so incredible. And so I started getting very much into harmonic analysis and the, the nerdy things, mm-hmm. you know, that goes behind the music. And then, and then I, when I went to college, undergrad at New England Conservatory in Boston, I went for music major. Uh, I played the bassoon. I remember it was, a, it was an instrument I picked in junior high school because of Barry Delman, and I knew I would have a better chance of getting a scholarship than playing the violin, for example, or the mm-hmm. even the clarinet. So, and it worked, and I got, ended up getting scholarship and going to New England Conservatory of Music. And but I always knew I wanted to become a conductor. And then the American Academy of Conducting was started by David Zinman in Aspen, which is a summer program for music, musicians, young musicians. And I sent a videotape. I got some friends together to play for me and like a mini orchestra. And I conducted excerpts, sent the video, and I actually got in and then got full tuition. And uh, that was really the beginning of it all for me. And I, I was also taking a conducting course with Frank Battisti, who ran the wind ensemble program at New England Conservatory. And everyone kept telling me, you you actually have a lot of talent and, and we we think you're going to be able to do this. And so... Hearing that from adults and professors was was incredibly important for me at that age, because otherwise I wouldn't believe in myself. Yes. Uh, I knew I wanted to do it, but I had these wonderful, inspiring people telling me, you can do it. And so I did, and I, and I won all these prizes then, and all this attention, and then people started paying attention. Managers started paying attention this young American kid, you know, I, then I became assistant conductor of Cleveland because I was invited to conduct them when I was 22 <laughs> because of this Aspen program. And then everything just started happening very quickly. Uh, but the, the good thing is the, the important people in the music industry kept me very safe from the public eye. Uh, they knew I needed to be, you know, making my mistakes in a safe place, not at Carnegie Hall. Yes. You know? So I was lucky to be surrounded by people who cared about me and wanted to make sure my career went at the right speed. I'm just curious, um, when you were in school and you you've decided that um, conducting was your passion, how many others um, were interested in the same thing? Were there any others? That's, that's funny. That's the first time anyone ever asked me that. No, there weren't any others. I couldn't. Name us another person in high school that was interested in conducting. Wow, because we have really so many. Strange now that I'm looking back. Yeah, we have so yeah. many violinists, and we have you know people who play various instruments, but not a lot of conductors. So, I think I think it's because when you, 
I mean, you're in, you're under a microscope. You're standing up. Everyone's sitting down, and you're standing up. And every word you say um, is heard. And I, I think you need a certain amount of self confidence to do it, and 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 realize you might fail or do something stupid, and not be embarrassed by it. So I think you need to be very comfortable in your skin, and you need thick skin mm-hmm. because uh, you know all these extraordinary people are depending on you. Mm-hmm. Um, to to help show them the way or show them how to play together or help them play together. The greatest orchestras in the world don't need a conductor, but but the conductor can help solidify certain things that can't be done uh, among uh, 90 people in a room. Okay. So um, the next question I know sounds naive because I am naive about these things. Can you take us through the genesis of a production when, when there's a concert yeah. scheduled and from the very beginnings, um, do you uh, do you actually know all the uh, musicians in the orchestra? And how do you decide on what songs are played, um, et cetera? Right. Well, I would say there are three, three scenarios. Um, the first scenario is when your music director or chief conductor of an orchestra, you know, all of, you know, all of those people and all of those musicians, um, from years of working with them. And you very much, uh, you have a big part in what repertoire is played and um, it was choosing which soloist, for example, if there's a famous violin soloist or singer coming to join the program. So you plan it far and ahead, sometimes three years in advance or two years in advance. Um, the second scenario is you're a guest conductor. When you're a guest conductor and I go to the New York Philharmonic, I show up on a Sunday night and then Monday morning, we start rehearsals, for example. And we'll have uh, a morning rehearsal, which lasts two and a half hours, a lunch break, and then a two-hour rehearsal. Um, the next day, we might have the same, or we might have one rehearsal. And then the following day, you have a morning rehearsal, which is usually called a dress rehearsal, which is a, the time to run through the program in a very kind of concert way to get a feel for the whole program without stopping and rehearsing. And then the evening, usually there's that first performance. And, and it could be anywhere from one performance in a week to four, mm-hmm. depending on the orchestra and the budget and, and the demand for the concert. So in those scenarios, you have a lot to do with the repertoire. But when you're younger, the orchestra will suggest some things to you. As you get older and more experienced and have a better relationship with the orchestra, you start requesting certain pieces you might like to do with the orchestra and they'll recommend some soloists some artists to work with like a a cellist or violinist or a trumpet player or a singer and you would say yes or no so there's an ongoing conversation about it and then the third and last scenario is 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 conducting an added opera house uh where you can have a lot more rehearsals that go into the mix because you have staging rehearsals you have musical rehearsals with singers. You have orchestral rehearsals without singers, chorus rehearsals to prepare them. Um, there's lighting rehearsals, which usually the artistic team of the musician, the musicians are not involved in. There's just so much that goes into an opera production. Like when I go to the Metropolitan Opera, um, it's a much longer period and you don't have as much say as a guest conductor in who's singing in those scenarios. So, 
I would say on average, it's usually a four-day period of rehearsals, three or four day, and then the concerts begin. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot to do with the planning of that week and what pieces are played. So on a time scale from the time where it's scheduled, you actually begin rehearsals. How long does it take till performance? Usually three days. Three days. Three intense days. Yeah. Yes. And then depending on the orchestra, the, 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 the great orchestras in the U.S., uh, you know, San Francisco Symphony, New York Philharmonic, Cleveland Orchestra, Philadelphia, they usually have two days of rehearsals and the third day is a dress rehearsal and performance. That's usually the norm. In Europe, they take it a little slower. Usually there are more rehearsals, one extra rehearsal or one extra day of rehearsals. For example, in Amsterdam or in Lucerne, we have one more rehearsal than, than uh, a, a typical American orchestra. Okay. You know, um, as I say, I don't have much experience with attending um, these concerts, and I'm going to Try to get that changed, then I I hope to come yeah, and I, see you the next time you perform in you our should, area. You yes, should. I Absolutely, definitely will. Yeah. Um, but I remember a number of years ago, my husband and I were in Vienna, and we saw the orchestra perform there with the singers and the costumes and the visual. Not not really an it's not an opera, but it was really focused on the orchestra. But you had that. Um, that extra element. Um, do we have any of that in the United States? I mean, where, what is that all about? Well, not really. I mean, what you went to was something that like takes you back in time to what these waltz concerts were originally like mm-hmm. and the way people dressed in that time. And that's an event and people like an event. In America, in the U.S., I would say people are starting to think outside of the box more and more. So there are much more casual ways of presenting concerts, which I think is great. So for example, San Francisco Symphony has something called the sound box. What they do is a very casual environment, very open space, not just one stage, sometimes three stages. You can drink, you can eat something, um, you can mingle. And so it's a very different event than sitting in a quiet concert hall where you're nervous and you don't know when to clap. Mm. Um, so I think, I think in the U.S. they're trying to think outside of the box in more and more organizations, especially the smaller organizations, of how do we attract people to this art form? Mm-hmm. Because it's not the way we've been doing it for the past years of all the musicians walking in with the tuxedo tails yes. and the audience comes in. The conductor comes out and bows, plays an overture, a concerto, and a symphony. That's boring, and it's cookie cutter, and it's mm-hmm. it's not for our time. People don't have the attention span for that anymore. So it's our job as musicians now in 2020 to help people understand what we do, because we don't want to be a museum only. We want to be a very contemporary museum where we take the masterworks of the past and mm-hmm. combine them with, you know, composers of the future because that's the point we want to preserve the beauty of the past and we also want to look forward to to the future of orchestral playing or music in general and does your work include writing your own compositions as well it it, that's a good question it doesn't for me Mm -hmm. that's just my personal view because i think if i write things it sounds like bad versions of other composers because (laughs) i work so hard on bringing other composers to life that I 
I think I have certain talents in my life, but I think writing uh, for an orchestra is not one of them. Um, I like very much to write little tunes and fool around with my friends and write songs and, you know, things that are kind of a joke or in the style of someone else. But to, to, to do it seriously, I have too many, too much respect for my friends who are composers already. Right. Um, so who do you look to? Um, who are your role models that continue or have in the past inspired you? Well, I mean, one of my role models who's not alive anymore was Leonard Bernstein, because uh. I think Leonard <laughs> Bernstein was uh, not only a great conductor, uh, not only a great composer, not only a brilliant mind, he was an educator. He taught people of the United States about music and how to love music and why to love music. And unfortunately, you know, he couldn't do it on his own. And uh, it's, um, it's strange to me that there are not so many more Leonard Bernsteins today. I mean, there, there are certain people who are extraordinary, like Michael Tilson Thomas, who was a protege of, of Leonard Bernstein's. He, is wonderful at spreading the word of music and, and how important it is. It's universal language. But I think that we all need to have a part of us that it's like Leonard Bernstein if we want this music to stay alive forever. And uh, I just, I thought what he did was so special. Um, his ability to encompass jazz and very serious, serious classical music on the same forum, on the same stage. And uh, he was an, an, an extraordinary human being, and I'm sad I never got to meet him. Yes. I Actually, I remember Leonard Bernstein when I was in school going around uh, uh, talking to the students, uh, exposing them to this wonderful music. And uh, yeah. I, I would have to agree. I mean, I, I was uh, still to this day so inspiring. Um, yeah. So um, now you're living in uh, Amsterdam, is it? Well, no, I'm living. I'm I'm living out of a suitcase oh. right now. Actually, I mean, I basically I travel way too much, and it's it's a part of my life. I do want to change a little bit because I miss my kids and my my family. So I have a home with my wife because she's Norwegian in Oslo, Norway, okay. and that's kind of the home base. It was last year. It was in Brooklyn. And we had a little baby born named Luca, who wow, um, was was born in Norway, but he lived for the first year in Brooklyn. And and then we decided that it was good for the baby to be close to the grandparents and also uh, the kindergarten, where where they start kindergarten at the age of one in Norway. And basically, it's like glorified babysitting. So it's like you know, <laughs> Camilla, my it. wife, can have a real. <laughs> life, you know, and <laughs> she can actually um, work. And she's a brilliant violinist, a brilliant musician. So so we can have that kind of safety there. But then also they travel with me a lot. My ex-wife, Lee, and my two kids, Sophia and Liam, live out in LA now. They, they used to live in New York and Brooklyn too. So we lived close to each other and we have a great relationship. And and my ex-wife and my wife get along great, which wonderful. is wonderful for me. Mm -hmm. And the kids love each other. And we'll all be together this summer in Santa Fe, where I'm conducting a big opera production. And I'll be there for the whole summer. So all the kids will be there. And that's great. But I don't have the most ideal lifestyle. And that makes me sad. I'm, I, I've just turned 40. And 
I'm realizing that as much as I love my career, I love my family more and I love my kids more. So uh, I need to somehow balance things a little better because I'm traveling too much. This is such a difficult thing for so many people nowadays. Yep, um, very true. So um, you you mentioned that you have children. Um, I'm at a stage where I have I have two granddaughters, and uh, we have thank you, and we have one one piano in the house that is uh, barely played um, because uh, all three of my sons had lessons, and you know you do what you do, and they went on to other things. So, um, nice. but my my granddaughter is uh, Zoe is expressing an interest in it. So, my question. To to you is as as a parent and as someone who um, many people look up to in the music field. Um, how do you inspire that uh, that love? If you can't inspire the love, how do you get uh, children into that world of music so that uh, you know maybe maybe they'll become a conductor one day. I think I have no agenda for my kids, and that's just my, I don't care if they play music or not, but I want music to be a part of their lives. And, I, and my ex-wife agrees and my wife agrees. So we, we've always have music in the house, whether we're, we sing a lot to the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, both my ex-wife and my wife sing a lot to the kids. Dancing is a crucial part of, of having fun with each other and you know, at the end of the night, having a dance party to some pop music. There's something about movement, dance, rhythm, singing, that's a very human thing to do. We all can relate to it. And we can get out uh, aggression by doing it. We can get out joy, sadness. I mean, there's a reason uh, why people go out dancing or when uh, teenagers get a lot of uh, kind of bad energy out going to clubs and kind of dancing the night away. It's not, uh, it's for all different reasons. And I think as human beings, we need that in our lives. So for me, I think if you introduce a child to music, they'll decide where they want to take it. But the, the, the important part is that we introduce it to them and we, we open them to it and I, we give them the chance to hear it. Yes. And I think that's the only advice I'd give to any parent. And if they can't sing, if you feel like, you're a parent and you want your, your, your son or your daughter to be musical and you're not, let's say you're tone deaf or you have no rhythm, you can get books that have songs on them. You can get um, TV shows. I mean, most kids' TV shows are brilliant today. They have lots of songs in them and they're catchy. Um, and I think that's wonderful. And I think when kids go along humming these songs, it, it, it's good for their brain. Oh, yes. It really is. And I think you can't force a kid to practice. I mean, I hated practicing. And I hmm. now I get time with my scores. I love it. But I really hated practicing. Uh, so did my wife, Camilla, as a violinist. Her parents would say, okay, time to practice. And she hated it. But now she loves it. You know, it's something she That's needs, an amazing but, thing, but, yes, that you, that yeah, you who I love mean, it so much, even you hated practicing. And I think course, that's true with course. so many, so many. I, I hate revising my writing, so, but you have yeah, to put yeah. the work in, I guess. Yes, you do. And I, and I remember, but even with reading, you, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that you like literature. I, I couldn't stand Shakespeare in the time at school when I needed to read Shakespeare. I couldn't, 
I couldn't stand it. I, I thought, it, what, this is so ridiculous. Why are we reading this language now? This doesn't make sense to me. And now I think it's one of the biggest pleasures I get is reading Shakespeare. And I remember, you know, doing anything to avoid reading a novel that the teachers said we, we had to read. I would, any cliff notes or movie that I could get in order not to read. And now reading is the, one of the biggest pleasures of my life. So everyone is, takes it at different levels. Some of my friends loved reading in high school. You know, I just hated it. I think uh, coming from you, those words uh, will surely motivate um, a lot of people out there who currently feel the same way. <laughs> um, so um, if we wanted to find out uh, where you're going to be appearing next and other information about you, how do we go about doing that? Well, the, my publicity person, uh, Elizabeth Bauman, has an, um, made an amazing website for me. It's just called jamesgaffigan.com, and it has my entire schedule. When you click on the whole schedule, you get to see where I am, where I'm going. So, you know, it's all on the website, the dates, the places, the times, and also contact information and stuff like that. So it's a really nice website, jamesgaffigan.com, and it has all the dates, all the repertoire of what I'm doing uh, in this season. Okay, and I'll definitely be at your next one, which is uh, in New yeah, York. Yeah, I will be please there, come. and I'll come and say hello. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Thanks for speaking it's to us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for your time, and I <laughs> wish you all, you and your family all the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Thank you.